going for um, the final panel today, which is entitled On Face My Shame. Um, so we're really lucky to have uh, presentations from five artists. Four of them are here with us, one of whom isn't able to be physically present, but um, will be represented um, by Dickie Bone. So this is what we're going to uh, do. We'll follow the order that is presented here in the programme. So here, first we'll hear from Alina Azadeh, who's going to be speaking about shame. Then Lauren Baron will talk about uh, disgust. Then um, Dickie will speak uh, about grief um, on his part and envy on Rachel's. And then finally, David will speak about love. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Quote. This is a quote from a shame researcher called Brenny Brown. Shame derives its power from being unspeakable. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. <coughs> Language and story bring shame to light and destroy it. Um, um, this, what I'm going to talk about is a project that was actually, it's been two years since I, it was a three-year project and it, it finished a couple of years ago. And um, I normally speak about it in a very different way from the way I'm going to speak about it today. Because the, the conference had the word feelings in it, I thought I'm going to go really personal and very subjective. So this is really um, a, an account of my experience of conceiving this project about debt, which is often synonymous with shame, as I came to realise. And then a reflection towards the end of the project on what happened as a result of the initial... Um, uh, events that created um, the, the project. So it's really just a, a, a two, set, two, a two stories and, and a bridged version of a bigger, a bigger piece of work around loss and grief, uh, autobiographical work that's going to be a performative and, and published. It is autumn 2011. You're in the lobby of the Bluecoat Centre in Liverpool on a busy Saturday afternoon. In your hand is a piece of paper on which there is a list of invitations to act, ways to interact with strangers on the street for you to choose from. They've been given to you by Tim, an artist who's running a six-week live art programme with five other artists called Present in Public. Next month, you'll all be asked to make a public performance inspired by the idea of gift, giving into gift. And this is the starting point today. You've never done anything like this before. You look down at the sheet and a few lines jump out at you. Make someone an offer you can't, they can't refuse. Be still in the space until something's given to you and keep a gift moving for as long as you can. You opt for the last one with a time limit of three hours to make it happen. You're totally out of your comfort zone. You decide to go out onto the streets with the intention to literally be led by your feet into encounters with strangers. Feeling immediately out of your comfort zone, you take out your tobacco to roll up a cigarette first and realise you run out of papers. You started smoking again when the debt situation started to get intense, creditors hounding you in the middle of the night, threatening letters and texts. You go into the local supermarket to get some papers, and at the counter, you notice a lottery ticket stand staring up at you, as if inviting you to take action. You smile in surprise. You never play the lottery. You're against it in principle because of all the long histories of destructive gambling on the Iranian side of the family. But as you look up at the cashier to pay for the visitors, you find yourself asking for a ticket and offering it to her as a gift. She looks at you with a mixture of alarm and bemusement, politely but playfully refusing. But what if it's a winner? 
you insist. Her line manager hovers behind her, curtly informing you that employees are not allowed to accept gifts. The cashier winks at you and jokes that if it turns out to be a winning ticket, she'll gladly meet you after her shift to split the proceeds and spend them together. It becomes clear now that you have to keep this gift moving, though, so off you go onto the streets with a single lottery ticket to give away. You decide that you will walk into the centre of the main precinct, Liverpool 1, sit down and give it to the first person whose gaze you meet. You sit in one of the central se- on one of the central seating benches and look up into the eyes of a young woman selling the big issue. You promptly offer her the ticket as a gift. She's recently arrived from Romania with two children and you talk about how, how it is to land in Liverpool. She warms to you, but even after assuring you, her that you don't want anything in return, she refuses to accept the ticket. You offer to buy her one of her copies of The Big Issue in exchange for taking the ticket. She immediately accepts, scratching off the numbers quickly and giggling when there isn't a match and then shrugging her shoulders and wandering off. You sit and roll up a cigarette. Now you have a big issue to give away and wonder what the next exchange might be. You look up to see a huge procession of people moving towards you down the central aisle. It's the Jesus Army, with purple flags and beaming faces singing Jesus versions of Beatles and football songs. We love you, Jesus, we do. You love Liverpool. A young man in the procession is giving out flyers and hands you two. Instinctively, you offer him your big issue in return and the gift moves on again. You decide to join in the procession for the next half an hour to see where it takes you, fly a gift in hand. The disarming thing is that there are scores of people now on both sides flanking the procession and singing along all the songs like they were all to old-time musical hits. You start to sing along too. It's a strangely feel-good experience and you launch wholeheartedly into the centre of the procession. A woman with three children starts speaking to you, asking you how you found Jesus. You confess you're just a guest. She explains she converted from Islam to Christianity and now lives in the community full-time. After a while, you become slightly uncomfortable as you realise it's a preliminary conversion conversation and you feel the urge to run away. You politely say goodbye and sit down on the bench, folding one of your flies into a paper aeroplane and lighting another cigarette. You launch the Jesus Army paper plane and watch it catch a breeze, rising left and then landing right in front of some offices behind you. The offices of Northern Rock the mortgage company, your mortgage company. This takes your breath away. The reality of your life back home hits you and you reach for another cigarette. Just this summer, after months of being unable to pay the mortgage because of the debts you felt obliged to pay for first and exacerbated by the financial entanglements with your younger brother in the wake of your mother's sudden death, as guarantor, you had ended up in repossession proceedings in the local county court. After months of hellish stress, You found yourself sitting with the judge and the Northern Rock lawyer and having what turned out to be a rather philosophical conversation about why 85% of people don't turn up for repossession hearings when in most cases they could be helped to find a solution to stay in their own homes. The judge raised shame as the main reason. They would rather lose their homes than face the situation in public. You could understand this. Shame was why you didn't tell most of your friends and certainly not your wider family what was going on until it was way too late. You later came to understand that it was easier to talk about death and grief than it was to talk about debt. Somehow in that moment, as you left the courtroom, you burned through the shame and failure which you'd worn like a crown of thorns and realised that you're not your house or your broken credit rating and that the most liberating thing would be to let go of both. 
that this was a kind of absurd game, a story, the plot line of which you could start to rewrite from now, from a place of having nothing. You were eventually allowed to sell your house with a huge debt on it and were helped by friends to be rehoused, thank God. When the invite to go to Liverpool and explore the darker side of gift came, you realised you had to go. Now something in you begins to get interested in debt, power and the state and the leveraging of shame to silence and control debt consumers like you into keeping up payments at all costs. The following week, you find a book by Margaret Atwood called Payback, Debt and the Shadow Side of Wealth. You journey with her into the mythologies of the afterlife to meet the figures there whose role it was to restore ancient checks and balances, in particular in ancient Egypt. Thoth, the moon god, the god of time, the god of measurements and numbers and astronomy and engineering skills, and a supernatural scribe or clerk. And in Christianity, Angel Gabriel, the recording angel, the one credited with keeping God's ledger book up to date. That's it. You could open a book of accounts, of stories and their shadows carried by a supernatural scribe. Yes, a book of debts. You head home with a renewed sense of purpose where there was previously despair. Um, this then jumps forward. It's June 2014. So that's three years later. <clears throat> You're holding a large A3 book in your hands. It's open, and the quote on the left-hand side of the page reads, Perhaps a time is coming soon when we will shake off our burdens. Charles Eisenstein. You're standing in a gallery, the foundry, a huge former steelworks in Lewis. It's beginning to fill with people, and you're preparing for your ode to debt, an interweaving of all the different words, definitions, and reflections you've found and been given over the last two years of touring when you were asked the question, what is debt, as you offered your book up to strangers across the country. This text, which has grown over time like a well-nourished child, has become a way in for people who think like you used to do, that debt is just a question of money, owed and must be paid at all costs. Now you think differently. This is the sixth of nine books you've opened, filled and burned. It's a very special one, as you finally brought it here to your hometown of Lewis. It's been three years since you spent that initial winter afternoon on the streets of Liverpool, dressed in a long black velvet coat, approaching members of the public with your large sackcloth book in hand, debt sewn in one, on one side and credits on the other. You're expecting just sums of money owed with a story, and you did collect over three trillion in unpaid debts. But you also found it filling up with debts which were impossible to put a figure on. Emotional, social, political, ecological, metaphysical ones. The more you interacted with the book, the more your understanding grew. The idea of burning it came from the, idea, from the jubilee, the forgiveness and physical breaking of debt bonds instructed in many holy books, among them the, among them the Bible every seven years and in the Torah every 50 years which happened along with a simultaneous freeing of slaves, a way to give society a reset and move on. Liverpool was to be a theatrical, protest-based acting out of a collective absolution, by no authority but those present who were willing to imagine it was possible. However, it soon became clear that many of those who joined the project were also experiencing it at a deep and, as a deep and moving collective ritual. Responses to the book and you have ranged from people feeling disarmed, provoked, bemused, tearful and grateful. There have been many intense conversations about money, 
power, morality, shame and forgiveness through backstories of money owed to lovers and credit card companies, protest entries about the trillions in toxic debts, de toxic debts foisted on developing countries and then repackaged for, for profit, enslaving millions. There are lots of entries about unexpressed love and apologies owed between couples, parents, deceased spouses and even metaphysical debts added to the ledger. Souls owed to Jesus by some of those street Christians you first met in Liverpool and beyond. Now everyone is gathered and you bring yourself back to the present and take a, taking a deep breath in and begin to read. Debt, a sum of money owed, the state of owing money, a feeling of gratitude for a favour or a service, an incomplete transaction, a broken agreement, a social interaction, a moral obligation, debt as the shadow side of wealth, Debt as sin, debt as power, debt as dependence, debt as story, plot, trap, promise, as social stigma, an injustice, an inequality, debt as anxiety, failure, shame, struggle, dysfunction, as disruption, as secrecy, debt as a Pandora's box, a paradox, debt as the poison gift, as virus, as pleasure, as freedom, as obscenity, as excess. It goes on and on. Um, you close the book towards the end and you, you finish up with this. Let's share the stories, speak the debts and prepare to burn the Lewis Book of Debts. And with a book under your arm, you carry it with your co-reciters and the audience behind them through a small door in the corner which leads to the back of the building. You place the book on a lectern, standing on a raised wooden podium. As you move into place and watch the crowd of people settling in, you feel warm sunshine bathing you all. Behind you, as the perfect backdrop, is a huge wall. It's scorched blue-white from a fire that devastated the site last year. It was once a theatre on this, the Phoenix Industrial Estate in Lewis, where you have your studio. This whole area will soon be taken over and developed beyond all recognition. But for now, it's the perfect site for burning a book of debts. You began on your own, a lone scribe, and now, for the first time, here in Lewis and thereon, you have a group of people, many of whom you know here, willing to recite this book with you. It's as if you've become a servant of this book, and in return, it has taken you to people and places which have melted this prison of self-pity, shame, resentment, and lingering grief that being motherless in a crisis once put you in. You've been joined by hundreds of people across UK cities and many more online from galleries and nightclubs and writers groups to town squares and shopping centres, death cafes and debt conferences and even a multi-faith choir who all sing the book in East London to its fiery end. One of your co-reciters now steps up to take over from you. Jared, a tall, striking American poet and performer in a cowboy hat and black silk shirt. Debt's a complicated snake the Gordian knot of its body wrapping around each of us in different ways. Sometimes the details are hazy, clear, complicated or concise. But debt often has a face and that face haunts. At 53, I have both debts and regrets enough to fill my own book. Story after story, now no longer just yours to deliver, fills the air and mingles with the smoke rising from the fireball below. Just 200 pounds, but it feels like I owe her blood. 38.5 billion, Pakistan's unjust, unjust debt burden. Numerous human lives in Iran. How do you repay human life? The extinction of the passenger pigeon, one of the most terrible stories of slaughter in the history of wildlife. Systemic change owed by first world nations, ex-colonial powers and their citizens to those who suffer indirectly by our, by our greed and excess. 
to my wife for her eyes, undoing my soul and calling out for the child in me to be found. Thank you. A woman with red hair and the eyes of a fierce raven reads out an anonymous entry. This is a debt of gratitude. I want to thank the people I'm indebted to who gave me places to sleep, who fed me, who helped me to salvage my possessions and who helped me find a new home and rebuild my life. Indebtedness is like a social glue and I'm always looking for ways to repay the kindness shown to me. More and more of the entries are now being recorded as debts of gratitude like this, as if the book itself wanted to balance its own scales and present as complete a picture of po as possible of debt, both negative and positive. In response to this, you've added your mother to the book. A debt of gratitude to my Iranian mother, Parvin Azadeh Ryu, who died in 2004, suddenly in the sea, for ex her extraordinary generosity and compassion. She showed me the power of creativity and self-belief and to whom I owe credit my socio-political conscience, my resilience, my love of poetry and the urge to welcome strangers. Over time, I see also how her passionate motherly love and generosity at times turned into overprotectiveness, financial control and codependency. Beside you is the firekeeper, Lex. She's kneeling down, completely still, straight and contained, both tending the fire and bringing her own meditative presence to the performance. She has a half smile and is focused mainly on the fire, and then occasionally, when she looks up at you, your eyes connect for a split second. She takes her cue from the tone and intensity of your voice as you deliver a key story, and then she gently strikes her singing bowl, and the timing is always spot on. After the readings, you close the book, pause and take a step forward. You look up and take in the faces of everyone looking on, expectantly. You step down from the podium and hold up the book, opening up from the centre to face outwards so the pages can be seen when they burn, and you begin the committal to the fire with these words. Drawing on the spirit of human generosity and compassion, we acknowledge how real these debts feel, the pain, fear, anger, injustice, denial, shame, regret, love and gratitude and understanding which may have arisen from the living and brave telling of these stories. We invite the fire to evaporate any unwanted emotional residue around these stories, create a temporary forgetting, and for this moment, as the fire burns, we return them to a place of emptiness. Words pass into flame, paper into ashes, and story into memory. You lower the book vertically into the flames, Lex catching it and settling it with her metal pokers and steady gloved hands. You all stand in silence and watch the flames consume the pages of the book, rippling over as the edges turn chocolate brown. Slivers of gold and blue flames curl around them and then turn slowly into black, grey and then white ash, fragile as fossilised leaves that then crumple. Some of the words are still visible as the paper around them disintegrates. Coming back to Lewis, to this book as it's being cremated, you stand in silence with everyone until the flames die down and then look up, first at Lex and then at the audience, and smile. There's clapping all round and a palpable sense of relief. You invite everyone to the wake to celebrate, offering up grapes and dates and wine and juice. It's an invitation to hang around and talk and enjoy the space together. It's relaxed and joyful, a party. In every location, there's been this sense of celebration at the end. Your son reaches up to you for a kiss, proudly showing you his face covered in white ash. You reach into your pocket for a tissue and offer it to him. Lex is carefully emptying the cooled ashes of the book into a jar to join the others that will sit in your studio until you work out what to do with them. You drink a few sips of wine, 
watch a slight breeze carry a thin cloud of ashes up into the sunlight and remember a verse of poetry, the one your mother, whose name meant morning star, would quote to you every time she went off to Iran. She would say it was in case she didn't make it back, laughing and reminding you of her future fate. Of all our fates, darling, Omar Khayyam. Every particle of dust on a patch of earth was a sun cheek or brow of the morning star. Shake the dust off your sleeve carefully. That, too, was a delicate and fair face. Um, that's my offering. And um, there's a, a half-hour film on Vimeo called No Debt Without Story if you want to see uh, some of the performances and more critical reflection on the project. Thank you. right click on this. Aha. talking about. <coughs> so um, my work, both academic and artistic, um, really is invested in uh, difficult feelings. My PhD was on difficult feelings. So um, coming here today and being asked to do a 10-minute presentation on one of those feelings was um, in itself a challenge. <laughs> I could talk for 12 hours about it. Um, as Louise knows, because she was one of my examiners two years ago. <laughs> um, but um, Finjen asked me to talk about disgust in particular, so I thought I would just run with that. And so what I'm going to do is um, sort of briefly talk a little bit about, I guess, sort of like the e an ethos behind my performance in relationship um, to difficult feelings. And then I'm going to talk about um, this, this thing here, uh, Notorious, which is my most recent piece of work. Um, which I just finished touring uh, two weeks ago. So I'm, I haven't yet kind of sat down and done the, that sort of deep evaluative work that um, I usually do afterwards and just starting to reflect. Uh, so this is kind of enjoyable for me in that way. So I get to just see, just discovering this relationship between this show and disgust and allowing it to be exactly what that is. So I will read you some stuff. 
<clears throat> so my work uh, employs strategies and subjectivities that resist pop commodity culture's distribution of affirmation and the celebration of the coherent, successful, capable female subject through the use of difficult feelings as political resistance. Difficult feelings, for me, can be a strategic mode that resists the normativizing power of happiness. My work proposes a reading of the feminist subject that does not rely on affirmative or positive affects, uh, such as self-esteem, pleasure, choice, freedom, uh, <clears throat> affects that have generally been celebrated and uh, normalized by post-feminism. So by disengaging with these affects or concepts understood by dominant culture as feminist uh, and refocusing on negativity, mess, and failure, my work proposes alternative modes of embodiment, uh, of display, and of agency for the contemporary feminist subject. My work aims to find a feminist agency that derives from the liminal body, the messy body, and its tendencies towards humiliation, awkwardness, difficulty, failure, and ambiguity, and as I'll talk about today, disgust or repulsion. So, uh, <coughs> notorious, um, right, so, uh, what can I tell you about it? It's uh, probably my largest, um, in one sense, it's my largest show to date. Uh, not as many people as the last one, but in terms of labor and scale, it's, it's, a big, it's a big show, and I'm just a little dirty bitch. And this little dirty bitch went into some mainstream spaces uh, and politicized them, so I would like to talk to Shane about uh, that. And what Jennifer was saying uh, about the museum space and the customer and all that is really relevant to my research and um, this piece in particular, I think. Um, so, uh, I'll just tell you what it was about. So I was researching uh, witches, bitches, whores, and sluts, and the mechanisms that seem to require their redemption uh, or punishment. Uh, Notorious interrogates female monstrosity, the figure of the witch, its relation to the <coughs> contemporary figure of the whore, and the cultural tendency to punish, vilify, or redeem that figure. There is often a cultural attempt to seek the whore's phantasmatic innocence, unmasking her as a helpless victim in order to redeem her, but also to mitigate the threat she might pose. Equally, there's a tendency to vilify that figure, uh, exposing her of her unsavory ways and uh, historically condemning her to death. Whether through redemption or punishment, her agency is stripped, reducing her to the powerless figure misogynist culture requires her to be. This is particularly relevant in a contemporary cultural setting in which popular culture, social media, and neoliberal consumerism have significantly redefined the ways uh, in which we relate to the female body, the concept of the real me, and public shaming. And so one of the starting points for this show uh, was the way in which female artists are often pathologized. Um, bless you. It's much easier to see a woman as a victim, as crazy, as tragic, uh, than it is to accept her in all of her complexity. Uh, my research into artists like Lynn Hirschman Leeson and many others, uh, and my own experiences, of course, have demonstrated the ways in which we culturally seek a singularized, easily essentialized female subject. And once a woman betrays that singularity, 
She needs to be redeemed. So Notorious explores the complexity of expectations and the value itself of being a difficult woman uh, on stage for an audience. So um, what I have from, for the rest of this is some kind of exploratory, explorative sort of little texty bits on some of the scenes in the show. So you might recognize some of the images from the pictures you see, or if some of, some of you were there um, uh, a few weeks ago. So, <clears throat> um, okay. I am both the thing you desire and the thing you fear. I am exactly what you expect of me and exactly its opposite. I am the repulsive witch whore just fucking going for it. And I'm also trying to give you what I think you want. Twerking witch style to Miley Cyrus's We Can't Stop. This bitch has no shame. She is an exhibitionist. She is filthy. She is horny and a fucking beast. When I say she, I mean I, by the way. <clears throat> Humping, spitting, sucking, drooling, masticating, masturbating, tangled hair and teeth between butt cheeks, hairy, candy, sticky, hairy, humping, breathing, doing what Miley wants me to do, just not the way she imagines it. Masturbating horrendously and reveling in the pleasure of just being a disgusting bitch. A gummy snake head hangs uh, from my vagina and I hump, hump, torque it out only to re-ingest it. The snakes come out of my vagina and out of my hair and go back into my mouth to be chewed, ripped apart, enjoyed, and spat out, spat back out at you, you who are here to witness this crazy bitch. Drool, spit, hump. Okay, then another scene. <clears throat> I am Medusa Matahari, octopus splayed on my head like a pile of dead snakes. I stand bejeweled on a platform with a camera under me. The video closes in on my vagina. A green eye appears from between my labia lids. The eye pulls you in and turns you away simultaneously. It sees you seeing it, and it cannot blink. It stares back at you relentlessly, awkwardly. It is uncanny. Unreal and yet all too real as my flesh around it, wet and sticky and dark, reminds you. I then take that vagina monster and put it in my mouth, another dark, wet hole, into which it disappears momentarily. It reappears again, uninvited, in mushy bits, spilling out of my mouth in yellowish chunks of monstrousness. Okay, next, another scene. <clears throat> <clears throat> the octopus tentacles slither around my face, my mouth, my tongue. It slides down my face, my shoulder, my breast, my belly. I dance with it. It is a part of me and also my lover and also therefore alien and other. This makes me think of Jen. Uh, <clears throat> it is a dead being. It is horrific and lovely. You enjoy its repulsiveness and also want to protect it as I begin to abuse it. You love it and you hate it and you hate me. I destroy this once living creature, the symbol of my whoredom perhaps, and I also revel in its stickiness. It stays on me. 
Its smell, its smell fills the room. The death of the sea fills your nostrils. Its destruction is at once seductive and cathartic and revolting. You watch its tentacles rip from its body as it's flung around by me, the monster destroying the monster, loving the monster, dancing with the monster. Its whole body is then torn in half and handed over to my sisters. I'm strung up, swung, and whipped by my own flesh, by these tentacles that once belonged to me, and it feels fucking great. <clears throat> okay, next scene. <clears throat> I hang upside down, legs spread. Is this still on? Yeah. No, it gave up on me. Okay. <clears throat> I hang upside down, legs spread. I have been reborn as a sexy baby. I've been changing for you. <laughs> I know you came to see some slutty bitch, some high-class art, some redemptive harpy, some virgin birth, some miraculous recovery of a whore, some hanging of a witch, I'm trying to give you what you wanted or expected of me. So here I am, exercising myself for you. I insert a largish tube slowly into my vagina, flip, is this just like not doing anything? Hold on, try that again. Is it, was it going through it? It was. I feel like every time I look, it's on this picture. Oh, right, okay. Let me just try it, like start it from the beginning. See if it does anything. I don't know, whatever. If I remember, I'll slide. press that button. What? Might be the last slide. It just doesn't, it won't replay it, I guess. Mm. Uh, do you have a play? Yeah, thanks. I'll keep talking in the meantime. <clears throat> so I was being a sexy baby. <clears throat> I, uh, I insert a largish tube slowly into my vagina flip and eject my green slime, my superbly artificial witchy innards. I repeat and repeat, flip back and forward, ejecting, erupting. And then it begins to change, and I'm pouring out change. Thanks. Uh, money from Mahuha. What is the value of this anyway? You're appalled by my flesh, my repetitive insertions until I play Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. And now you can enjoy yourself, revel in your repulsion, be pleased with my pleasing you. <clears throat> Next scene. Uh, none of this is in order, by the way, just some other scene. Uh, <clears throat> I have to pee now. 
You know what's coming. I strap myself up again into the aerial rig. My ritual pile of red popping candy is poured into place. It's sugary dust like fumes of smoke, filling the air with its sickly sweet smell. I place my feet on my sister's shoulders. My urine is both familiar and alienating in this context of pretense. It is a fountain veering to the left. The popping candy begins to sing like fire. I come down, lie in my bodily mess, and die. Sometimes I lick it, turning my tongue into sticky wet flames. We are dead now, dead sexy virgins, just like you asked for. <clears throat> so to conclude, uh, in Notorious, I repeatedly ingest and regurgitate my monstrousness. I invite it and repel it, just as I invite and repel you, the audience. You are brought in, you empathize, only to be repulsed, pushed back, and alienated once more. Your place here, like my own monstrousness, is complex. Your desi you desire and resist my monstrousness, and it, I, need and yet despise you. You are complicit in this witch hanging, in this rejection of the repulsive one, the other one, the unhappy one, or you are repulsed by my implication of your collusion. You want out. But my desire to push you away, to repel you, is a political act. I do hope I have destroyed your happiness, the pleasure of this theatrical space, the pleasure of watching a woman in this space. I hope I have disgusted you, not just because I am disgusting, unappealing, angry, and difficult to fetishize, but because I have disrupted your relationship to this body on stage, this witch, whore, baby, virgin. I hope I've made you so nauseous with this movement back and forth, this push and pull, this invitation and rejection, between your empathy and your exasperation, between your pleasure and your rage, your misery and your desire, your laughter and your boredom, that you vomit out your feelings all over the fucking floor, only to eat them all up again and relish in your own mess. The end. Dickie, and um, first of all, I'm going to be Rachel Mars using my voice, and um, I'm going to read out something that she prepared earlier. Okay, I don't like, really like sitting behind this desk, so I might come forward next. <clears throat> okay, so Rachel Mars, envy and likability. Hello. First of all, thank you to Dickie Bo, who agreed to read this for me. 
I'm sorry, I can't be there in person. I imagine he's being brilliant. Um, a few years ago, I read one of the shortest stories I'd ever found. It was a Hungarian folk story, and it was two sentences long, about a fairy coming round to your house to offer you anything you desire. It had an unexpected punchline. I rewrote a version of it. This fairy comes round your house. You, she says, are in luck. Ask for anything you want. Anything in the world, and I'll give it to you. But whatever you ask for, your neighbour gets double. Great, you say. Fine. Cut out one of my eyes. I'd been reading about envy for a few years. <laughs> After getting interested in it on a course at the Tavistock Institute in 2010, something about the taboo nature of it got under my skin and it called to me personally. There are lots of varying and contrary, contrary definitions, but this one seems clearest to me. An anecdotal definition of the difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is when you have an ice cream, and when you have an ice cream, and I wish I had an ice cream, and it is painful for me. <laughs> Envy is when you have an ice cream, and I wish I had an ice cream, and it is so painful for me that I take your ice cream and I chuck it in the road. <laughs> Envy is a murky mingling of the desire for something coupled with the resentment that another is enjoying something and you are not. In 2011, a few events combined to start me thinking about the show which would become Our Carnal Hearts. This is the show that Rachel didn't know if you saw it. I saw that show in Texas. She, that's me. <clears throat> Back to Rachel. I watched the London riots unfold and I saw how quickly... How quick, so this is a list of events, sorry. Um, so there's a... This is number one. I, I watched the London riots unfold and I saw how quickly fury at police injustice turned into looting and the acquisition of stuff. It was the time of David Cameron's big society, we are all in this together trope. Gareth Malone was on the telly a lot, showing the personal and societal benefits of singing in choirs. <laughs> I read a speech that Boris Johnson gave at an event to honour Margaret Thatcher. What a delightful sounding evening, where he said... <laughs> Some measure of inequality is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is a valuable spur to economic activity. <laughs> this uneasy combination of communal activities, singing and rioting, set against the fallout of capitalism and solo striving for achievement, set a spark off. Envy is a product, product of accepting a notion that we live in a time of scarcity and limited good and that when someone else achieves something they are taking that thing off the table, and therefore it is no longer there for you to enjoy. Their success denies you something. It remains a shamefully taboo um, individual and fairly under-discussed emotion, and in a 1990s survey, it came 425th out of 500 emotions <laughs> in terms of likability. It was also, I realised, my go-to emotion when I'm having a hard time career-wise. For an artist... 
This is, mm, excuse me, for an artist, this is particularly disgusting and, damag and, and damaging thing to, a particularly disgusting and damaging thing to internalise. But when there are only so many commissions and so many festivals and so much in the Arts Council pot, it is an easy capitalist trap to fall into. What it does, though, is turn your artist colleagues into competitors. The thing about envy is that you feel it about people really similar, comparable, and often close to you. I am not envious of Sarah Silverman. She is slightly similar to me in some ways, <laughs> a gobby Jewish entertainer, but she's not in the same world as me. She's another scale of success. It's often your colleagues, your friends, that are the target of your envy, which makes it an uncomfortable thing to express. There's a line repeats in the show, someone you know who is like you, but a little bit better. <laughs> I was nervous about admitting these feelings publicly among my peers in the world of performance, which is a place where community is so important. These feelings are seen to be ugly, a sign of a violent competitive drive and also of weakness and fragility. I realised that I had to admit to them in making the piece if I wanted the work to be a space that both complicated and allowed the feeling of envy. I read a lot of psychoanalytic literature, tried to wrestle with the basics of capitalism and competition. I interviewed friends about their feelings of envy and where it sat in their bodies. I spent a lot of time looking at the patterns of posting on Facebook and Twitter, in particular in relation to the humble brag and responses <laughs> to it. I went to talk to some feminist art collectives who were working in the 80s. When the GLA funding was cut and they were asked to compete against other artists for the same pot of money, they refused, joined together and then split the ground. Somehow, growing up in the 80s, I've accepted this notion of competition, and so I don't resist it in the way these collectives had. I read a lot of mainly Christian religious writing around envy. Uh, the title, Our Carnal Hearts, comes from Christian ecclesiastic commentary on Psalm 37. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Feeling envious in Christian thought is seen as battling God and not trusting God's will and provision. I came across an extraordinary study about envy at a university in India where a housing block for gifted students was so repeatedly set on fire by students deemed not gifted that they stopped rebuilding it. The more I researched, the more I felt we were in a very perfect shitstorm of envy. A culmination of fears of scarcity, isolation born from technology, the move from collectivism to individualism and status anxiety derived from consumerism. There is certainly a more benign envy, envy that points out what it is you desire and spurs you to work towards achieving it. Um, I was most interested by the more, malign, the more malign envy that creates feelings of destruction, worthlessness, violence. The more I read, the more I saw how hugely uncomfortable a feeling it is. You feel the envy, which itself is painful, as it points to something or some quality you are lacking. Then you layer on top of that the feelings of shame that are associated with feeling envy. Then you layer on top of that the lack of a safe place to really openly discuss those feelings of envy. You end up with an inexpressible, 
shameful, secret cocktail of self-loathing, but one which the market absolutely requires for the continuation of successful economic activity. I made Our Carnal Hearts with composer Louise Mothersoul of Shit Theatre and three other brilliant female performers and singers. It's made up of central text spoken by me and a surround sound choral score. In the rehearsal room, we talked about whom we envied. We all seemed to have a nemesis, someone close to us that we measured ourselves against. Sometimes these were our actual long-term artistic collaborators. <laughs> Politicians have traditionally used the politics of envy to explain away people's dissatisfaction with inequality. It is a, it is a useful smokescreen to mask the deep and unjust schism in wealth operating in most capitalist societies. I captured audio of Mitt Romney, Morris Johnson and David Cameron talking about envy and achievement and worked with Louise Mothersoul and the singers to create a prologue which echoed the vocal cadences of these utterances. I knew I wanted to perform the show in the round, actually in the square, a decision inspired in part by the setup of shape note or sacred harp spiritual singings. Sociologist and writer Helmut Schuch writes that envy is a directed emotion. Without a target, it cannot occur. This audience setup, the square, creates this target, invites a face-off, a comparison with the people opposite you, a way to watch how others experience the work. The show asks the audience to sing together almost immediately, creating a sense of community and harmony. It later invites more personal reactions. I asked the audience in silence to think of a time when someone they knew had achieved something and whilst they were happy for them, there was also a sense of discomfort at this success. I immediately invite particular audience members to name who they were thinking of and their answers form the chorus of a song of congratulation at another's success. The private and solo moment is quite unexpectedly rushed into the public domain. This is always a tense sequence. Some audience members don't wish to express what they were thinking of. Others are delighted to tell the assembled about their partner, their friend, their sister's house, baby, job, whatever. Often people approach me afterwards to tell me more about the situation or to explain that the person they were thinking of was in the room. This is especially true in industry-heavy audiences. <laughs> Our carnal hearts ends with, and in many ways is entirely, a ritual, a passionate act of exorcism. I had read about an old Guatemalan tribal ritual. When a new child is born into a family with existing children, a chicken is beaten to death on the oldest child to capture his envy and do away with his ill will. This is how we deal with envy. It is bloody and it works. That's detailed in Why I Hate You and You Hate Me by Joseph Burke. I didn't find any other established rituals associated with envy, and I feel that this communal physicalization of an emotion normally felt solo and in shame is so necessary. Near the end of the work, I invite two audience members who are older children to beat me with rubber chickens. It is both ridiculous and cathartic, and it allows the feeling to be contained and potentially diffused within the framework of the show. The whole process of spending five years or so <laughs> thinking about, reading about, and talking about envy has been surprisingly, hugely positive, personally. 
It has really allowed me to unpick the societal, psychological and political machinations of the feelings. Some people mistake my intentions. I risk being seen as solely celebrating envy, but I'm not a champion of it. I am a, cha I am a champion of owning its complexity and reimagining envy aside from the humiliation and guilt that it, is, it has been imbued with by religion and the contortions through which politicians mangle envy to serve agendas of wealth accumulation. It now exists as part of the spectrum of emotions that I feel and talk about openly. I work with Greg Wohead a lot, and since working so much with this feeling, we now tell each other when our first quite primal responses to the other's achievements contain envy. I'm happy for you, and I also want to shit in your bed. <laughs> Both can be true at the same time. It diffuses those feelings immediately, so there is much more space for real joy in someone you love having success, which is a much less painful position to occupy and one that strengthens community at a time when that feels more important than ever. The end. So now I'm uh, me again. Um, just take a sip. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so when Fintan asked me to come and say a few words about uh, grief and its relationship to my work or, you know, um, whatever, um, I thought, well, I don't know how, whether grief has got anything to do with my, <laughs> what I do. Um, but okay. Uh, and then I thought about it a bit and, um, and I realised, oh yeah, there's quite a lot of grief in, in, in what I do. So anyway, for the benefit of those of you who don't know anything about what that is, um, I uh, make lip-sync performances, theatre shows and cabaret shows and things like this. Um, so nearly all of my uh, work involves my channeling the voices of others, and quite often the voices of people who are no longer with us. <clears throat> um, so... Really, the whole artistic enterprise is an ongoing, repeated um, attempt to make an absence present. Which I think, like most art, is actually about, really. You know. um, so, um, the first thing that I did as a lip sync was uh, I lip synced to Judy Garland. Um, it was these tapes of her sitting alone in a room making notes for a memoir that was never written. Basically grieving over uh, her, her life, you know. And, um, and when I first heard those tapes, um, I got... As with all the material that I end up deciding to lip-sync, to edit to, and put together into a show and then animate... Um, I had, I had a heart connection to it, you know. And on reflection, I think that one of the things that I had a heart connection to was Judy Garland was this idea of uh, a lost childhood. Um, and uh, I could identify with that idea. Um, I think probably lots of people can, you know. There's this idea, isn't there, that childhood is a Victorian invention, right? That before that time, um, children were referred to as... Um, 
little people. Um, and, uh, and I wonder whether really it's adulthood isn't the invention, you know, because I go through life feeling very much like a child, um, but one who, you know, who has to pretend to be an adult. I was just coming from the US Embassy, you know, <laughs> where you're also treated like a child, um, you know. And uh, so, anyway, I, th- this, um, this idea of a lost childhood, for me, is also related to being queer. Um, so, I mean, I knew that I was sexually interested in men from probably a slightly precociously early age, uh, like five or six. And uh, I also knew that wasn't okay. It's about shame. Um, so, um, so, of course, I shut up shop. There were other reasons why I shut up shop emotionally, but that was a big one, you know. Um, and um, there were also other reasons, which I won't go into necessarily now, uh, where, which meant that I sort of grew up a bit precociously, you know. And you, which is exactly what Judy Garland had to do. She was thrown on the stage at the age of about two, you know. So she didn't really have any childhood to speak of. And then the second subject that I took a great interest in, made a show about both of them together, um, very much like Judy Garland, I think, was Marilyn Monroe, who also didn't have a childhood to speak of. She grew up in orphanages. So, anyway, I was drawn to these because I had a heart connection, not because of anything cerebral. And it's interesting that we're, we're gathered together here today and uh, that this, the, the focus of this uh, symposium is on... The, how to talk about, partly anyway, t- difficult feelings. And nearly always, in the reason I make the shows that I make, I think, or the work that I make, is partly because I don't have the language. You know? And so um, the, the shows are my sort of vernacular. The, the language of my the performance modality is the, is the way in which I connect, ideally, my heart to yours, you know? One way or another. And I think also that the, 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 the theatre space is conveniently sort of set up physically for, for this um, to happen, because we're safely put into the dark quite often. And, um, and we're sitting side by side. Now, and I think there's something very significant about this sitting side by side when it comes to the... To the, to the, uh, to facing... Having difficult conversations, let's say, let's use the word conversation as, as, a, as a way of describing what's happening between me as the maker of the show and you as the audience. I don't know about you, I mean, I, some of the most significant difficult conversations that I've had in life, I have not had facing the person, I've had sitting next to the person. When I came out to my dad, uh, in the car, I was sitting next to him, so I didn't have to look at him. And, and I think there's something about the physical space of the theatre which makes it a little bit safer for us to engage with difficult feelings, uh, like grief, um, because we don't, we're, we're not seen. You know, it's obvious, isn't it? Um, so, as time has gone by... Keep going down, time. Um, uh, this performance mode that I um, favour um, has led to my being described as being like a medium, um, as in like the leader of the seance. And because um, it's like I'm channeling these often dead people. 
And, um, <clears throat> and that was written, that idea was written in a... Dick, Dickie Bowe is the closest this country has to a genuine medium. Was written, or something like that, was written in a review a few years ago. And um, at the time I was reading a book called, you might know this book, An Anthropology um, of Images by Hans Belting. Anybody know it? So anyway, this book then is um, about the history of images as uh, it pertains to the funereal realm. So you go back to, uh, well, if you go back to the caves, uh, Walter Benjamin talks about this in that essay, um, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, um, that those cave paintings, 35,000 years ago, roughly, um, Interesting that we were already around for about 165,000 years before these paintings appeared, anyway. Uh, they suddenly appeared at the same time as we started using words, language, um, as a way of uh, for the symbolic carrying of images. Um, <clears throat> so 35,000 years ago, you get these cave paintings, but those caves, of course, are very dark places. Um, so um, these pictures, according to Walter Benjamin, were not necessarily meant primarily for human eyes, they were meant for uh, the dead, for spirits. Um, and then about 10,000 years ago, um, at the time of the first sort of socialised human settlements, you have um, stone death masks and decorated skulls and stuff like this. Because when someone dies... Um, and I don't know about you, but I've seen this. When my grandmother died, um, I was there. And her body became an image of her. I recognised the body as making present the idea of my grandmother at the same time as it made present the fact that she was gone. And Hans Belting basically says that that's what all images do. They make present the idea of that which is not here at the same time as they make present the fact that it's not. And Roland Bartz talks about that in Camera Lucid. I made a show kind of inspired by that. Um, you know, a photograph on the wall says this thing has been, is no more, and is not here. So... Um, Now, according to Hans Belting, an image, um, for it to be defined as such, according to image theory, you probably know about, a lot more about this than I do, but is, um, requires a conceptual frame around it, you know, to contain it, to contain the idea, and um, has an effective resonance in the body, which is where it happens. Because I don't know about you, but I often, I, traditionally, I used to think about um, images as belonging in the painting or in the photograph or in the piece of pottery or on the T-shirt or whatever, wherever it might be. Um, but they, these are just the mediums for the image, um, the material carriers of the image. Um, they aren't the image. That happens.
happens in the body. And it's sort of conversational. Um, so, and this thing of these feelings obviously are happening in the body. Um, now, my I'm allowing the pause to be a bit uncomfortable because I have a choice um, and um, I've probably spoken for long enough so how to wrap up it seems to me that feelings this word difficult um, is already loaded with a negative slant, right? Um, and um, I think one of the reasons that I'm interested in grief, I didn't necessarily think of it consciously, is to do with the experience of uh, intensity around loss, um, allowing oneself to go through that experience um, without, um, and maybe this is a reason for acting it out in some way, but it seems to me, you know, there's that Buddhist idea that pain is basically as intense as the degree to which you resist it. You know, but that if you don't resist it, then it, it's not pain, you know. Before I go on stage, I have a choice of whether I experience apprehension or anticipation, because essentially they are the same feeling, and uh, what I experience is contingent on the filter of thought through which I decide to view the feeling. And uh, so, my feeling about grief is that it may f seem to be a difficult feeling, um, but it's possible to transform our, a, a relationship to it. Um, and so my, when I express it, when I get, when I get make contact with it through work, the work that I do, it becomes less about some kind of wallowing in a... Uh, negative space and it's more about an honouring of the thing that's been, the person that's been the time that has been lost um, and um, so yeah, uh, I think that's simple but not easy right um, anyway, so I was just really thinking, literally thinking out that through out loud, you could tell uh, so I, uh, anyway, I'm going to leave it there, thank you Um, so, sort of, Fintan uh, sort of asked me to sort of talk about um, 
love in relation to um, into my play beginning, which is which has just been at the National Theatre and is, is going to be coming back at the Ambassadors <coughs> Theatre in the uh, in the new year. But but sort of similar to Dickie actually, that when I actually sort of started to think about um, what I was going to say to you earlier on this afternoon, I sort of reflected upon just how much of my work, um, particularly in the last sort of um, Particularly in the period, I guess, since I've been known as kind of a, 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 a playwright, just a playwright rather than a pr promising playwright somehow. Just how much of my work has been sort of um, meditated in, in, uh, on, on sort of different forms of love. Um, and so, so I suppose what I sort of thought I'd do is I'd sort of talk, talk um, about... Uh, three of the plays actually just briefly and then uh, some work that's kind of in process now so sort of um, stuff that's not been on yet that's sort of also sort of preoccupied in a different way of love and then sort of kind of circle back because I sort of was thinking earlier as I was sort of standing in prep well why why do I I mean I thought this is quite good that I'm sort of coming here because I've never really thought very hard about why actually why am I so obsessed by all of this stuff and why do I continually, continually return to these forms of love? And so it's sort of then going to try and track back to sort of think aloud a bit about some of that stuff. So, I mean, the first one really sort of, and it was kind of literally as a kind of play where I did drop, go move somehow overnight from being a promising playwright into a playwright, was a, a, a fifth play that I wrote called Under the Blue Sky, which um, I suppose explores the idea of unrequited love. And, um, and I suppose it's kind of a, 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 it's sort of, it's a kind of, it's not just the kind of first thing I suppose that I did in my work, sort of exploring sort of love in, a form of love in some way, but it's also what, what happened in the writing of that play and has kind of been important to me in the work that I've made since, as you sort of, understand as a talk is it is that there's somehow an interesting relationship between the kind of the world of the play and and that theme so in under the blue sky all of the characters are um uh, secondary school teachers um and i think i was really interested in the idea that that um that teachers actually sort of put so much um they give so much love and care that kind of never comes back in a way. And that's not necessarily something that they feel resentful of, but it's just a fact sometimes of their working lives. And so for me to, to kind of explore uh, unequal relationships or unrequited love where, where you've got one person who's romantically interested in a way that's not reciprocated within the world of school teachers is a really interesting um, kind of pairing, I guess. Um, so I kind of I did I did that, um, and then um, not for sort of probably about nine years later, I did a play for the Almeida Theatre called The Knot of the Heart, and I kind of had this idea that 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 one was more interested in kind of the conditions of love, really, because I sort of had an idea as I got older that that I felt like 
life had taught me, certainly until that point, that there's only kind of one form of love that was really unconditional, which is the love of a parent for a child. And I thought, actually, that as I'd gone through life, I'd sort of seen that most other forms of love, in my experience, were, could be conditional, actually, or, or were conditional. And actually, that sometimes the love uh, of a child for a parent could be conditional in the way that a love of a parent for a child could, wasn't, you know, was often unconditional. And it, and, it, and it kind of it came, you know, explored that again through a kind of world that kind of really was an interesting world to kind of pair that theme with, which is a world of kind of uh, codependency and heroin addiction. Um, kind, of, kind of one of the kind of extraordinary experiences of my life, really, um, meeting the kind of middle-class mother of a smack addict who sort of quite sort of openly was sort of talking to me and the actors in the workshop we had about the fact that it makes, you know, that she, kn that, that she knew that the, that the last thing that she should do uh, was enable her daughter's smack, um, smack addiction or to do anything to enable that addictive behaviour but, you know, the choice for her was her going and giving someone a blowjob for 20 quid or just giving her the 20 quid herself. So there was no choice. And for me, kind of the whole, in that situation, you know, the whole idea of the con conditions of love and the unconditional nature of maybe a parent's love for a child came into sharp relief. And again, so I suppose... For me, there's a, an interesting relationship between the world and the theme then. And then kind of coming to, to right up to date with beginning, really, which is, the, which is, I guess, a play that sort of looks at um, uh, love at its inception or whether the idea of uh, love at first sight even might exist. And, um, you know, I think sort of... Again, really important the kind of context in which that's explored that that it's not um, explored within the context of the kind of star-crossed lovers, which we kind of really used to a kind of a, a kind of a young love. But actually, it's really important in the drama to explore that in the context of two people that actually uh, have been hurt a bit, who have been around the block a bit, so that so that that's not too easy. You know, because even if you feel like this is incredible, what I'm experiencing, having just met this person, that life has knocked, you, knocked the confidence out of you. Life has taught you to be careful. Life uh, has taught you maybe to mistrust such things. Um, and so, so, again, I suppose in that one, the context of kind of, 40-somethings, people that are my age, rather than uh, teenagers or 20-somethings, is, re is really, really important. Um, I kind of, just on the current projects, I'm sort of uh, writing a play for the Royal Court, which has been going on for quite a while now, on and off. And sort of, uh, I suppose appropriately enough, is about kind of long-lasting or obsessive love. Uh, you know, we've all had one, the one that won't go away. Uh, the one that you just have to cut off, otherwise you'll never, your life will never ever move on in some way. Um, so two people who, people who never quite managed to do that, 
Um, and, uh, 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 you know, that, that are never quite able to completely give each other up. And so that piece, which it kind of is, is sort of half written, really, is, um, is about a long relationship between a foreign correspondent and a cameraman in war zones uh, from um, Bosnia to Raqqa. So a very, very long relationship. And again, the world of it, very, very important for me to to explore that kind of form of love, I suppose, because the thing about those people is they're so obsessive about their work. They're so compelled. There's a fantastic book by Peter Beaumont, who's currently, I think, the Jerusalem correspondent for The Guardian. Um, and he's done all sorts of foreign uh, work um, over the years. And in his book, he says, you know, because of his, uh, the post-traumatic stress that he'd suffered from being in war zones like i think like the last line of his book uh, that came out about eight years ago is this and i am never going back six months later he was back <laughs> you know so kind of it's really for me then the kind of interesting relationship i suppose between the form of love and kind of the world of the play so sort of circling back why is it why is it i kind of i was thinking earlier why is it i return to this why is it something that sort of obviously preoccupies me and I return to it and I return to it. And I think the kind of best I could come up with actually as I kind of was having my, you know, three minutes in the queue in prep, you know, was, was actually that it's to do with the first time I went to the theatre, which is completely to do with what, why I've ended up doing what I do. I come from a very ordinary blue-collar family from Romford in Essex and I didn't go to the theatre until I was 17 uh, and this is absolutely true it's not kind of just a story made up for journalists the first play I ever saw was King Lear and it was Nicholas Heitner's revival of King Lear with John Wood and I saw it in the Barbican in 1990 and um, and I had a very adolescent 17-year-old attitude to it. It was like fucking boring Shakespeare, and it was like the A-level set text, and I'd heard that it was an uncut production, that it was over four <laughs> hours long. And just before the lights went down, my mate Angus said, um, oh, it's all right, about halfway through, someone gets their eyes pulled out, and then, Phew. And then came up for breath. <laughs> Two hours and 15 minutes later, and I couldn't quite believe what I'd experienced. And then, bang, back in again. And then, because um, I wasn't doing King Lear until the upper sixth, I didn't know the story of it. So when King Lear is kind of, you know, they win the battle, he goes off to get Cordelia. I was expecting him to come back on stage with Cordelia hand in hand with her. And of course he doesn't. Uh, he came back with her in his arms. How, 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 how. And I could not believe what I'd seen. And in fact, um, in the course of that four hours and 20 minutes, I'd gone from that kind of completely adolescent attitude to having sort of tears in my eyes and having a completely overwhelming emotional experience is the best way I can describe it. And, um, and I think, you know, like, um, one of the things that I think about art is that, you, is that when you have experiences like that, you w w sometimes want to kind of have that effect on other people. 
And then many years later, I read that John Osborne, the playwright John Osborne, author of Look Back in Anger and many other famous plays, said that he wanted to give audiences lessons in feeling. And that really struck a chord with me because I think that that's what I've always been trying to do. And I think that looking at these different facets or strands of love or areas of love, sometimes romantic love, sometimes the conditions of love, different forms of love. What I'm trying to do in some ways is to give an audience a lesson in feeling and a big emotional experience. Um, like everyone else, I could sort of sit here and rattle on for another easily another 10 minutes, another hour, another two hours, but um, that was where I got to anyway before I got my skinny cappuccino. <coughs> so, thank you very much. <laughs>